Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Carrie and we are Paranormal Chicks, episode one forty nine, and Donna is sick. Yes, mouth breathing by yours truly. It's not a ghost; it's just me. Background noise equals Donna's heavy breathing, <laughs> <laughs> or mine. But I'm not sick <laughs> for once. <laughs> oh my gosh! Knock a wood. Uh, so, what's new with you, little Miss Gamer? <laughs> well, playing games. Phasmophobia still, and since I've been sick, I watched the Night Stalker documentary. Was it good? Yeah, it was good. I've seen like so many things. It's like I haven't obviously haven't watched it, but it's like so many things are like it was too graphic, and it's like true crime fans are like, if you don't want graphic, watch Forty Eight Hours. You know? Yeah, yeah. I don't feel like it was. Yeah, like most of the people who are like, if you're like really into true crime it wasn't very graphic or it wasn't yeah. too graphic if you just like want like a gloss over of a mm-hmm. case like you would watch something truly like a 48 hours type thing on it you yeah. know you wouldn't be watching that on it yeah i'm nosy so i like seeing all of the stuff me too and it focused on the cops and the victims more and i like that and i really liked the cops like can they have their own special, like their own TV show? Because I love them. And, oh, and then I listened to a podcast called The Chameleon. Mm-hmm. And it's like a Hollywood con artist. It's this person who preys on people like makeup artists and like the fringe people, you know, not like actual actor. Well, they did do actors, but, but like not like the A-list, they, right. the people like to get them into the. Uh-huh. And so it was interesting. It, so it's worth a listen if you want something to binge because it had like 10 episodes, I think. But that's what I've been doing in my like little cocoon. cocoon. Oh my God. Uh, jinx. Right? Even when we're days apart. I know. Well, while she was in her cocoon of illness, uh, I was in Pensacola. Living it up, right? No, I wasn't. I was in a course, a continuing ed course, getting stuck by needles because it was a dry needling course. So it was lots of needles in my body. That's literally my saw. Like, do you want to play a game on saw? That would be (laughs) my thing. Like a fucking needle thing. Oh, God. No, I don't want to play a game. But I can stick needles in you now. Well, I got one more weekend this weekend, and then I... Can, well, I mean, I could now, I could practice on you, but I mean, like, I could, like, legally. <laughs> Tiffany, she needs someone to practice on. Tiffany, you want to be my pincushion? Why I did I say that? So I, don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be your pincushion. Colby's like, thank God I'm on a shutdown right now. Right. So, yeah, so I was basically in class for a four day weekend. Oh, we did play games, though, in the Creepinati. So, we have Discord. We talked about that last episode that we are like now we're getting into discord we understand it like quasi understand mm-hmm. it's a very strong word understand but we're getting <laughs> yeah but we did the jackbox party pack in discord and everything and that was fun with the members of the creepinati like who signed up and everything so if you're in the creepinati get on discord because like we're just doing like rando things and it's fun yeah, I was there for like 30 minutes on Saturday, and then I had to sign off and stupid study for my test because <laughs> I had two tests on Sunday. Ugh. And I will again this weekend, so just know I won't be there that this weekend either. Yeah, you know, I was looking forward to having like two weekends of, it's like, I'm going to do stuff. And then my body was like, no, you're going to have like sympathy for her. So I don't know. My body was just like shut down. That was your sympathy for me? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, okay, you got to stay in and, and watch TV? Well, it wasn't oh. like I was in the best place ever. What, you mean your bed? 
Well, you know, I mean, I had Kleenex right beside me. Oh, gosh. Bless your heart. (laughs) Blow your nose. Well, speaking of Discord and being able to play games and all of that, you want to know who else gets to do all of that with us? All right. New Patreoners. So thank you so much, Ed W. from Oklahoma. Kiara B. from Maryland. Angel M. from Illinois. Priscilla J. from Australia. Joanne R. from New Jersey. Lindsay A. from Alabama. Mimi K. from North Carolina. And Bianca W. from Maine. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. We hope that y'all are enjoying all of that bonus content, including Discord and the Game Nights and the Facebook Lives and the bonus episodes. And if you want all of that fun stuff, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Okay, for my story this week, we're going to talk about the, for lack of a better word, the bizarre death of Arliss Perry. Arliss Perry was born February 22nd, 1955, and she was born in Bismarck, North Dakota. She was from a very devout Christian family, like one of those go to church every time the doors open up, like go on mission trips, try to convert the world to Christianity type upbringings. She lived a bit of a sheltered life, like Again, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to sound like an asshole here, but it was one of those lives where, again, she did like mission work. And so she was like exposed to other people, but it was exposure of like mission work where it was like, hey, this is Christianity and you should do this, you know? So she was still sheltered in that way. It wasn't necessarily like exposure, trying to learn other, other cultures and trying to like immerse herself in that type of way. It was like, hey, this is my culture and this is the religion that's the right religion. You know what I mean? Yeah, she was sheltered on the day-to-day stuff. Yes. Growing up, Arliss was a great student, you know, just an all-around great kid, never in any trouble or anything like that. Everyone loved her. She had great parents, came from a great family, you know, all the things. When she was in high school is when she met her high school sweetheart, Bruce. And my my name name is Bruce. Bruce. (laughs) Mm -hmm. As soon as I saw your grin, I knew where you were going. Oh, God. Fisher friends, not food. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) They, of course, fell in love and knew that they were, like, the one for each other. Well, Bruce wanted to go to college to be a doctor. And he had actually gotten into Stanford in California. Well, he was a year older than Arliss. So he graduated from high school and moved out to California to go to Stanford, and Arliss still had like a whole year of high school before she graduated. So they did the long distance thing for that year and made it work. She spent that whole year like doing the best that she could to like keep her mind off the fact that he was so far away and that she missed him. She did the church thing, the mission work thing, telling everybody all about God. When she graduated from high school, Arliss, I mean, she knew that she wanted to marry Bruce. Bruce wanted to marry her. She wanted to move out to California and be with him. And, of course, I mean, with her faith, they would have to be married before she was going to move out there and live with him. And so they did. They got married at a young age, which is not uncommon of the time. After they got married, she moved out to Palo Alto, California, They moved into some residence halls, like from, I guess, married couples, as part of Stanford's campus. Arliss loved it there. Of course, I mean, it's a beautiful campus. It's a beautiful area. It's gorgeous weather. It's hello, it's California, you know. But she was very lonely. I mean, Bruce is super busy. He's pre-med. So, of course, he's so busy studying and doing all the things. And so... She just had a hard time finding friends and making friends. There were some letters that she had written back 
to people at home and you could really tell the difficulty that she was having like making finding and making friends and just that loneliness that she was feeling but she had found a church there that she just found like one day on a walk that she thought was beautiful that she was starting to go to and she wanted to get a little job so that she could just help support the family because again you know he's going to school and all of that she just wanted them to have a little bit of money and again to help with her, well, boredom, one, and two, loneliness. She ended up finding a job as a receptionist at a law firm. You know how I said that she liked to send mail to people at home, like letters, that's how she kept in contact so often. Well, on the night of October 12th, 1974, Arliss had some letters that she wanted to drop in the mail, And she and Bruce would also walk a lot at night. That was like they would walk and talk. She liked to just take strolls at night. And he didn't like her walking by herself. And so he would go with her. And they enjoyed that time together. Well, on this particular night, it wasn't so much of a wonderful stroll. They got in a little bit of an argument. Not like a, like, holy shit argument, but a little bit of an argument. They were arguing about their car. I don't even know what about the car, but they were arguing about the car. And Arliss was like, not, she was like, I'm not arguing anymore. Like, you go on home. Like, I need a minute to cool off. And so Bruce went back to the apartment and Arliss went to the Stanford Memorial Church to pray. So the Stanford Memorial Church was this church that's, in the main quad at the university. This is the church, from my understanding, that she was like going to to like pray and all of that that I was talking about earlier. There's not a whole lot of detail that I found on like how often or anything like that, but from what I understand, she would like go and pray. If it's anything like the one that we had on campus, it was small, and I don't think anyone was like in there. It was just kind of like you go in there by yourself, Kind of thing. Do your thing, pray or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It was just like a like a space. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I was getting from this, but who knows. So the couple had like split off from one another, supposedly around like midnight, for Bruce to go home and Arliss to go and pray and kind of just have a minute to herself, collect herself before she went home. Well, at 11.50... The security guard, Stephen Crawford, said that he saw Arliss go into the church as two people left. So Stephen Crawford, the security guy, he was already like kind of behind locking it up. I don't know if he was supposed to lock it up at midnight or what, but he gave Arliss a little bit of time in the church and then took a look around, saw that it was empty, kind of yelled, okay, you know, if anybody's in here, it's, I got to lock up so that if anybody was in there that he missed, they could, you know, say their amens and hit the road. And then nobody was there. So at about 1210, he checked everything one more time and then locked all the doors. Meanwhile, Bruce is back at the apartment and Arliss isn't back and he's starting to get fucking nervous he's like okay where's she at i mean it was an argument but it was about the fucking car like this is like where's artless so somewhere between 12 15 and 12 30 bruce says that he goes back down towards the church which is only like half a mile away from their apartment so he goes back down towards the church just to see like okay artless like yeah. Come the fuck home. Like it's late. It's dark. You it's not, you know, you need to yeah. come, you need to come home. Like we I need you safe. Well, when he gets to the church, it's completely locked up. Mm. So he's like, wait, where the fuck is Arliss? So he starts kind of roaming around campus hoping that maybe he'll just run into her. I mean, because here's the thing they had only been living there for a couple of weeks, like or, or she had. He had been living there a year, but she had only been living there a couple of weeks. And so she didn't have friends. So it's not like she's like, okay, let me go stay over at Donna's house and cool off for a little right. bit because I'm that mad. Again, she wasn't that mad. And, well, she didn't have any friends yet, you know. So he's looking and he's looking and he can't find her. So he goes back to the apartment and she's not back there either. 
So at 3 a.m., he decides that it's time to call police and report her missing. When he calls police, they actually go over to the church and check around, but they didn't see anything suspicious at all. That was until a few hours later at 545 that very same morning when Stephen Crawford, the security guard, goes back to the church. When he goes to open the door, he finds that one of the doors is now unlocked. So he knows immediately something's wrong. Why is one of these doors unlocked? And he goes into the church and he sees that everything looks okay, like the altar is untouched, but then he sees just to the left of the altar is Arliss's body. Oh no. And it is a gruesome crime scene. Ooh. When police get there, they find Arliss's body kind of sort of on display. And I'm going to go into a bit of a detail here. So if you need to, please skip forward. So Arliss is laying on her back and her legs are spread open, like spread eagle open. Her pants, some accounts say that they were completely removed, her pants and her underwear. Some say that they were pulled down around her ankles, but either way, her pants were removed and that there were signs that there had been some sort of sexual assault. Golly. There was a 24-inch altar candle still inside her vagina. <gasps> no. Mm-hmm. Her shirt had been torn open. There was a candle pushed like between her breasts. She had been brutally beaten and strangled, but that's not what killed her. Oh my gosh. What killed her was an ice pick (gasps) that they had stabbed. If you say her fucking eye. No, just behind her left ear in the head. Oh God. But basically, if you, like, took a picture over her, like, looking down, her body was shaped almost like a diamond, like like how her legs were positioned and stuff. So it kind of looked like a pentagram. Okay. Near her body, there was a pillow that had some semen on it, and then there was, like, a partial palm print on one of the candles. So, of course, police are going to look immediately at Bruce, her husband. Yeah. I mean, he reported her missing. They got in an argument. You know, he's pretty forthcoming about everything whenever he called them and all, but they're going to look at him. So, police go to him, and they don't at first tell him that she's dead. They ask him some questions, try to, like, tease out some information before they tell him that she's dead just to see what they can get from him. Yeah. But long story short, they're like, he didn't do this. They, of course, end up telling him he passes a polygraph, and the police feel very confident that he didn't do this. Yeah, it doesn't seem like something that a spouse would do. Right. It feels different. Like, it feels different yeah like it's the sexual assault with the candle and the semen on the pillow and the that to me says they wanted to rape her and they couldn't get it up and rape her Mm -hmm. and so they assaulted her with the candle and then either while they were killing her or after they killed her they jacked off yeah that's what that tells me yeah I don't know if that's the case, but that's that was my immediate thought. Yeah. Of, hmm, they probably couldn't, you know? Yeah. So listen to how I thought this was so fucked up, and maybe this is just me. Yeah, no, this place does have church services. Because, like, the next day, two days later, whatever this was, because I can't remember if this was on, like, a Friday or Saturday, they had church service at this church. What? But they just had it outside. Like, so they could preserve the crime scene. Uh, no, thank you. Yes. No, thank you. Yes. That's very weird. So freaking weird. Like, like, I feel like you could cancel. 
Yeah. I mean, stream it. No, I'm just kidding. It's 1974. But still, like, I, I feel like God would understand if you stayed home. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, you're literally feet away from where this woman was brutally murdered. Then, when they had her memorial, they had it there. So, like, the people who knew her and stuff were, what? like, again, feet away from where she was murdered. Yeah. So when police did interview the two people who were leaving the church as she was coming in, they said that they saw like a young man coming in that he looked to be about 25 with like sandy blonde hair wearing a short sleeved blue shirt. This is California. I mean, that's fucking everybody. I mean, that's 25% of the population. So that's not very helpful, right? Right. But then... When they had the memorial service, some of the people that she worked with were like, wait, that's her husband? Because apparently they had seen her ha- like having a conversation with this person that they assumed was her husband, that it was kind of a heated conversation. And they described him much like this guy, like kind huh. of a sandy blonde hair. They all assumed it was her husband. And when they saw Bruce, like, they were like, oh, wait, what? So, not that she was, like, having an affair, but, like, yeah, who's this sandy blonde hair guy? Yeah. Well, who is he? I don't know. <gasps> oh, that said, fuck, fuck. You'll have to wait. Oh. Maybe. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sick. Don't torture. <laughs> So, of course, police look at Stephen Crawford, the security guard, but the only evidence is like that partial palm print, and they can't make that match him or Bruce. And so they're like, okay, well, mark him off, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, suspects are just fucking dwindling. They find it odd that the unlocked door was actually like, Broken slash forced open from the inside. Mm. So they thought that was weird. Yeah. But again, like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. We don't know. I mean, unless maybe Arliss and the guy were in there when he called the security out. guard, yeah, locked him in there. And the guy that did it to her had to get out somehow. You yeah. know, it's like, what the fuck? You know? Right. So this goes on for a long time. And there are no clues. There's some ideas. There's some theories. Some of them way far-fetched. Some of them mm, interesting. So we're going to talk about some of the theories. So apparently, at some point, somehow, David Berkowitz, a.k.a. Son of Sam. Okay. Like the David Berkowitz Son of Sam. Gave some, like, hint that maybe he was involved in this. Wow. Because, again, this happened in 1974. This was such a mystery. Like, nobody knew what the fuck happened. And with the positioning of her body and all, it was so bizarre and horrible. And just nobody knew. I mean, it was... Following not long after just the whole Manson cult and all of that. And I think that even there was like the Mansons even tried to take a little bit of the credit for it. And so it was like some big time names. Some people even said it was a Zodiac killer. And some stuff even said like because of her positioning and the candlesticks and all of that. It was the Freemasons. And like, like I'm talking like big like yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. So one of the suspects and i'm using like air quotes for suspects that happened like years later yes years later wow was this local flautist who was pretty well known in the area and this is one of those things like you can find their name but we ain't gonna talk about their name so allegedly they had been seen playing in the church the night that Arliss was murdered. And they were wearing this quote-unquote Afro wig with this woman who was laying down naked 
beside him with like candles all around, like all around her burning. And the person who saw them allegedly said that it was Arliss who was laying there. So like when police went to talk to the flautist, they of course like played it cool, like pretended to be not even police. Like they just were like, yeah. Hey, you know, whoa. Oh, we're from blah, blah, blah. Like pretend, you know, whatever. And this person like even brought up the, like the wig that they had and everything. And it was not even remotely close. Like not even a, that is not what happened at all. So it was this huge, what they thought was going to be this break that wasn't. Yeah. And that's, what this case was for police over and over and over. Huge things that they thought were going to be these huge breaks. Yeah. What do you mean, son of Sam is talking about this case? Oh, it's right. not. What do you mean? There's the Manson. Oh, it's not them. What? There's the flautist. That, oh, it's not him. You know, yeah. wait, what do you mean y'all saw her talking to some, you know, sandy blonde haired guy that was, oh, it's not him. We don't, we actually never found out who he was. We have no idea who that guy is. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert. We never found out who he was. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, then, this is like the kind of the kicker. Allegedly, that year before Arliss like got married and moved to California when she was doing all of her like mission work, she had stumbled upon these people who were in the area that went to this church, air quotes, called the Process Church. And so she was witnessing to them to like bring them to the Christian faith. But the members of this church were, according to this one article, more of like apocalyptic type church, like more revelations and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, but also the founders of this church like met with L. Ron Hubbard because mm. they were fascinated with like the auditing part of Scientology okay. to like gain control over people to get people's like literally that's how Scientology gets your inner secrets. They quote unquote audit you and force you to tell all of your inner secrets, some things that aren't even true. And so then they're like, gotcha. Now when you try to leave, we're going to tell all these secrets that you've told us that you've literally paid us to audit you for. But I digress. Um, (laughs) So allegedly, when Arliss was like with her grandmother, she met some guys who were part of this church. And she was like trying to tell them all about her religion. They were telling her about theirs, talking about the Bible, all the different things. And long story short... Basically, she crossed the wrong person. And this process church allegedly has ties to Satanism. Of course. Of course. I mean, of course. I roll. Exactly. And so her crossing the wrong person, she's like trying to convert their members like to Christianity. And so they were retaliating against her. This theory, hypothesis, if you will is that they followed her to California. That's what I was going to say. This is a completely different area. Right. So that they followed her to California to kill her in this church. So it's like, okay. But then they're like, oh, but it could be because after she was buried, like back home, someone stole her grave marker. And so they're like, oh, well, it could have been this process church, like, still in her grave marker, like, as a trophy, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, there's literally no evidence to point to this. Right. Well, and that part could have been them, but, like, not the whole killing thing, like, to follow her. And they're saying, like, because her body was posed like a diamond, so that, like, again, looking over her, she looked like she was in the form of a pentagram, that it was them because they're Satanists and, ooh, you know. Yeah, well, there's so many more things than that, but that's states away. Oh, I know. And she's one blip on the map of... And it's, yes. Yeah, no. But about the gray marker or something, like, they could be petty like me and be like, motherfucker, shouldn't have done it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying, like, it could have been them, but not the other thing. 
I mean, they're not going to go. They're not going to spend all that money, go to all that trouble. Because it's not like she was like in on it. There was this one article that I read. It's called The Murder of Arliss Perry. And it's like broken into part one and part two. It was a blog I found. And that part two like really goes into depth on this theory. And they talk about how like she was deemed a suppressive person by Scientology as well. And all of it. So it's like. If it goes that deep with, like, Scientology and a suppressive person and all of that, I mean, I guess you could kind of see how maybe it could get that big. But on the other hand, I feel like if Scientology is taking her out, they're not doing it that way. Right. They're going to do it in a way that everybody else kind of knows that they did it so that they're scared. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's still unsolved? Well, it was for about 44 years. 44 years. Yes. Holy fuck. Police never gave up. They had the DNA, but they had to wait on technology to catch up. Yeah. So the DNA came back and matched Stephen Crawford. I fucking knew it. Oh my God. Because he was the only one plausible, unless it was just some rando person. Mm Mm-hmm. The security guard. Oh, my gosh. Saw her go in and just... Yep. So, yeah. So, basically, he had beef with the university. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So, he had been in the U.S. Air Force. And then, when he got out of the Air Force, he was working for the Department of Public Safety at Stanford. So, he was a police officer, like, carried a gun. Everything. 1971. Well, in 1972, there was a new police chief. And he reorganized Stanford's police department. And was like, there are so many of these officers here who are not qualified to carry guns. And he asked them to reapply for their positions. Well, about three-fourths of them didn't cut it. And he was one of them. And they were forced to become security guards. Mm. And that is why he became a security guard instead. And he was pissed. It's his fault. Like, it's his doing. But, yeah, so was BTK when he could become an officer and all that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, this was basically his revenge, part of his revenge. So he also stole stuff from Stanford. I'm talking like when police like looked in his apartment and stuff, they found uh, like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stuff that he had stolen from the university over the years. Human skulls. Okay. Rare books given to the university from like the 1600s, like Right? I mean, like, wow. like a big deal of shit, you yeah. know? He even went to, like, the print shop on campus and, like, printed him himself a fucking degree he never fucking got. Oh, my God. So, like, when he left, he had had a degree from Stanford that he pretended like he had. Wow. Yeah. What a smug bastard, too. You know, he was just, like, laughing at them, like, oh, I couldn't be a cop, but, like, I fooled you all. Mm-hmm. You know, ugh. Police aren't sure if this was his only murder because this is a pretty fucking gruesome murder for this to be his one and only. Right. But there's no evidence to link him to any other deaths. And then, you know, police had, I think they had like interviewed him. And when they had gotten to his apartment with a search warrant, like they knocked and he said, hold on for a minute. And he died by suicide when the police were there to serve the search warrant for his house, which would have led to his arrest for Arliss Perry's murder. They did find a suicide note that had been written like two years ago. So, you know, he had been contemplating this for a while. Yeah. So it's bittersweet for the family because, I mean, they have some closure in that they know that he did it, but... I mean, he served no jail time, was never even officially fucking arrested for it. It was 44 years later. He's 72 years old when he died. I mean, he got to live his fucking life. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. And it was a senseless murder, like no reason at all. And I mean, why all of that hoopla around it? Like, why the... Probably because of the Manson murders and everything to be like, oh, they'll never think it was me if I do all of this, you know, to throw it off of him. But I really think that his smug ass could not get it up. Mm -hmm. And so he assaulted her with a candle. And then, and probably, honestly, that's just the way her body fell. It wasn't like necessarily posed, like the diamond, you know, whatever. Like, it's probably just how she fell. But really and truly, like, I bet his, he couldn't get it up. Because even if it was something like he had fantasized about forever and ever, even if this was his one, even if it was his one and only, you know, when he got in that moment, he couldn't perform, you know? Yeah. One of the things I was reading, too, was talking about how, you know, one of the detectives kind of really thought it was him all along. They just couldn't prove it. Because I think, actually, don't quote me on this, but I think with better technology, they did end up linking that palm print to him, you know, just with the shitty... 1974 technology they couldn't but with but anyway but they always kind of had the feeling it was him because they were like whoever did this to her like knew that they had time yeah they knew that nobody was coming around so who had that time who knew nobody was coming around other than him yeah that's true that's so sad just goes to show you no place is safe no it's not i'm just glad they had some sort of closure her father had passed away not too long before they found out, you know, before the DNA came back, like, I don't know, a couple of years or something. So he never found out, but her mom did. Yeah. Well, and then just in general, knowing that there's not a killer still out there. Yeah. When I think too, like they knew it wasn't Bruce, but also like, okay, it wasn't Bruce. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I wonder, did he... Like, did he finish school? Was he a physician? Did he get remarried? You know what right? I mean? Like, yeah. I want to know what happened with him. Wow. Well, my story kind of goes along those same lines. And it's funny that one of the Patreoners that you named is Ed W. Because he suggested the case I'm going to cover today. Synchronicity. Synchronicity. Right? Okay. See, I learned a word. Mm-hmm. And we're going across the pond for this one. My favorite place that I've never been. (laughs) Trigger warning, this does deal with suicide. Picture it. November 5th, 1992. Martin Denham, an 18-year-old boy, was found hanging from a tree in Bestwood Park in Nottingham, close to his house. I mean, you just get right to it. Right. He died by suicide. And his parents, April and Percy Denham, both said that he had the mental capacity of a 13-year-old, but he was holding down a job in a factory and everything was going fine for Martin until Halloween, which was just five days earlier. On Halloween night, 1992, they all sat down as a family to watch a live event that the BBC was hosting called Ghost Watch which is where they would be doing a live broadcast from a real haunted house. And Martin seemed to be enamored with the broadcast. He became obsessed with searching for clues in the background. He became just glued to the TV for that whole hour. Well, in the days after the broadcast, Martin grew certain that their own home was haunted by the same ghost, which was called Pipes. And it was just really bad luck that they had a bad heating system, which caused their pipes to make noise or knock. So unfortunately to Martin, this confirmed his suspicions. When Martin was found, he was also found with a suicide note that read, If there are ghosts, I will be with you always as a ghost. And Martin was not the only person who was affected by Ghost Watch. There was a report by the British Medical Journal in 1994 that stated two 10-year-old boys suffered PTSD from Ghost Watch. Oh, my God. One was admitted to an inpatient unit for eight weeks. Jeez. Yeah, and he would bang his head in an attempt to free him from his thoughts of Ghost Watch. And he said, like, he was haunted by the evil spirit, Pipes. 
Then, like a domino effect, in response to that article, there were four more cases from children who range from 11 to 14 years old. And these are only the after effects. During the broadcast, the BBC was bombarded with over 30,000 calls from viewers who were terrified or who were furious parents of frightened kids, and that was all within one hour. And then there were some fear-induced labors, and one wife called one in the BBC to pay for her husband's pants because he shat them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Have you, I've, I, I, <laughs> have you ever been one of those people that would be like, this show made me so mad, I'm going to call? No. Me neither. No. Like, just change it. Yeah. Just change the channel. <laughs> just like on Facebook. Scroll past the post. Yeah. Hide the person. Hide the post. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. <laughs> Stop watching it. Yeah. Like, things don't have to change because you don't like it. Yeah. Just don't watch it. Exactly. Don't read it. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. Ghostwatch was fake. All the viewers believed it was real, but it was all a hoax. Dun-dun-dun. So, let me tell you about Ghostwatch. There was a screenwriter, Stephen Volk, and he was like, picture this. A six-part series about a paranormal crew, and the big shebang is going to be them doing a live tour of this haunted house that they've been researching and the bbc was like okay we like it but uh make it one episode like we're not going to dedicate six episodes to this but we'll make it a halloween special so steven was like okay sticking to his vision he wanted to make it really believable which he ultimately succeeded in so he went from the six days to one day where they would just be in the haunted house. And they touted this as the most haunted house in England. Well, he got two presenters from the BBC who were very popular at the time, Sarah Green and Craig Charles, and they were going to be at the family's house. Then back in the studio, another famous presenter, Michael Parkinson, would be the host, basically. And then they had Sarah, the presenter, her real-life husband, he wanted in on it, so they had him where you could call in and tell your ghost story. So they had like a little number that you could call in and be part of the show. However, we all know that this was recorded already. So the lines really weren't open, but no one else knew this. And it just added to the live authenticity of the show. So whoever called, I'm sure they got like a busy signal. Well, we'll talk about that. So the story takes a lot of inspiration from the Enfield Poltergeist case, which was televised shortly before this. And it's a case I want to do, but it was revealed that some of the evidence in that televised broadcast could have been faked and stuff. So I don't know. But anyway, the plot of this whole show, Ghostwatch, centered around the early family who lived in the greater London area. And it was Pam, who was a single mom, and her two daughters, Suzanne and Kim. They had reports of all the typical poltergeist activity, knocking, plates crashing, weird noises, even some cat noises, and they don't have a cat, doors closing, etc. There are even sometimes that Suzanne had scratches on her face from this entity, which the kids named Pipes. Remember, I said Martin knew that name. Well, how they got it is when they asked their mom, what's that noise? She said, oh, it's just the pipes, and the name stuck. That really struck a chord with Martin because that really did happen in his house, mm -hmm. and so it made that even more believable to him. Poor Martin. Yeah. During the broadcast, Michael Parkinson, he would be joined in the studio by a woman who was thought to be a paranormal expert who had been with the family before, and her name was Dr. Lynn Pascoe. So Michael Parkinson, he was a carry of the duo, and he was sure this is a hoax. But as the show continued, there were some calls that came into the studio where viewers said they saw things in the background. And you have to remember, the Enfield case was just televised 
and proven to have falsified some of the aspects. So people are looking for fake stuff like, oh, are there strings that made that move? You know, all of that. So they're looking close at these TVs. And if they see a dark figure emerge, it's going to scare the crap out of them. And that's what happened. Well, viewers called in and they said that they saw the entity pipes and they described either an older man or an older woman, bald or with a skull for a head, holes for eyes or either jet black eyes. And it was wearing either a black robe or a black dress buttoned all the way up to the neck. A skull for, uh uh-uh. The thing is, their descriptions matched the ones that the children had given Dr. Pasco months earlier, which they had footage of. So it, you know, like made it seem even more like, holy shit, what you're seeing is real. Mm-hmm. And so then they would review footage, but then those dark images wouldn't be there anymore. So it really got people confused, like, oh, wait, I didn't see that. And then they do it again, and it would be there again, you know, and so it was really fucking with people. So it's already scary, but if viewers made it to the show's second half, that's when things took an even darker turn. A neighbor was interviewed and talked about a mutilated dog (gasps) that was found nearby, and then as the night continued, the early children, they just, you know, were increasingly upset and The house just kind of got into chaos. More disturbances were happening. And of course, like some was caught on TV, some wasn't, you know. And how they had this was like, hey, we had footage from six days ago when this house was under surveillance and they would play stuff and, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. But then there was a viewer who called in and he said that he was a social worker And when he was watching, he put two and two together that Pipes is the spirit of a mentally ill man who was one of his patients named Raymond Tunstall. And he had been convicted of child molestation and child abductions. And he had been sent to a mental institution because he believed he was being haunted by a spirit of this older woman who was a baby farmer, remember you did Mm -hmm. a thing about that, who turned child killer. And he blamed her for making him do all the bad things to the children. Well, he had previously lived in that house and he actually died by suicide in that house. His body wasn't found for 12 days. Mm. And in this time, his cats were with him and they got mm. hungry. Okay, so this is okay, just to confirm, this is the story mm-hmm. that this person, social worker, called in and is telling about his previous patient, Tunstall, mm-hmm. that's not really real. Right. It's okay, all okay. part of this okay, program. Just just confirming that this just to remind myself that this ain't real. Yes. So he said that the cats got hungry and ate parts of his body, which is why... He had a skull for a head. Uh Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah. And that's why Suzanne ended up with scratches on her face, and they would hear cats. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So then they got different calls in saying that poltergeist activity was going on in different people's homes now. Like, oh my gosh, now there's a plate being thrown in my house, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so... Now people are going, holy shit, this could, you know, travel through the TV kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What is it, Casper? <laughs> and then... <laughs> Remember when he went and turned the TV for Miss Carrington? Yeah. And then one of the crew members was injured because a mirror fell on him. So it was even more like it was up in the ante of mm-hmm. danger. So just when it gets to that heightened, like, holy shit moment... It goes to this knocking sound, but then you see one of the children and they're making that sound. And so it's like, oh, called her. It's all fake, you know? And she's like, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Like, that's not me really doing that. Like, you know, whatever. But it's like, oh, okay. It's all cool. Like, whatever. But then Dr. Pasco is like, wait. What if this program is really 
like a national seance for pipes. And like, that's why he's more powerful now and making her do the knocking herself and all of this. And so he's gaining power. And like, while she's saying all of this, you know, like setting it all up, Sarah Green, one of the presenters, she gets dragged out of sight behind this door. Okay. And then Pipes, the entity, seems to take control of the BBC studios. And then there's chaos going on. And everyone runs out. And there's like a light that explodes. And so it's really dark in there. And there's just Michael Parkinson, the lone presenter there. And he's kind of like stumbling around. And he's looking for a teleprompter because ever the professional. Mm Mm-hmm. And he reads a nursery rhyme, which has been like, it's something that Pipes has read before, like in, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's a continuation thing. And then at the end, he starts to speak in Pipes' voice. And the last thing he says is fee fi fo fum And then it just ends and the screen is black. And that's in... 1992, okay? This is the first time anything like that has ever been on TV. People are scared out of their minds because when they think that they might be taken over by a ghost or their beloved presenter, Michael Parkinson, is now possessed by said ghost. But Ghostwatch was the highest viewed show at that time with 11 million viewers. Damn. But because of all the controversy around it, especially after Martin's Mm -hmm. unfortunate death, they banned it for 10 years. They would not speak of it. Like, you could not mention it in any, like, boardroom meetings, anything. It was just, like, done. They did release it in 2002 in, like, a DVD kind of thing, I guess, like, for 10 years, and then it was, like, 10 years was up, and then... Like Disney, it was out of the vault. Yeah. The BBC was always concerned about the effect that the broadcast would have on the public, and instead of pulling it, like, they always wanted to, they billed it as a drama, and on all the advertisements, it was billed as a drama, but people didn't catch that, because what does that even mean? Like, you see it as a drama, and it's like okay, like, whatever. Like, I wouldn't think anything of it either. But the BBC, when people were complaining and doing lawsuits and everything else, yeah, they were like, hey, we said it was a drama. You, you know, it was there. And they did have a title card at the beginning that said it was written by Stephen Volk, but it was just like a quick flash at the beginning. You know, you Mm -hmm. had to be quick. And also they had set up the lines, that that number that you could call, as an answering machine, kind of. Like, it had a mm-hmm. message. Well, when you were first connected, it would be a message telling them that the show was fictional. And then they could leave their message about their ghost encounter. But because of the high volume of calls of, like, everyone who was terrified or angry... The number was constantly busy, so no one heard the pre-recording of it being fake. So no one heard that, and so everyone, again, kept thinking it was real. And it, like, that's common, you know, like, you try to call in and it's busy, and you're like, oh my god, so many people are calling in because they see the same thing I'm seeing. Yeah. And so it just added to the realism and kept, like, inflating this fear Yeah. in everyone, and so this was, again, banned. It was like one of a kind kind of thing until then Blair Witch, mm-hmm. you know, everything like that after it was this. Yeah. But here, like it was billed as being live and all of that. Do you think it's wrong that they did it like that? No. I don't think so either. I mean... No. I mean, they said it was a drama. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like if it was like the lights are bursting and like people are like running from the studio, I would be like, what? Yeah. You know? Well, but a lot of people didn't even make it that far. True. And I mean, I also am not sitting here watching it, but like 
it just like it almost feels like like and of course it's you describing it. I'm not watching it, but it almost feels like the blob, you know? Yeah. Again, I'm not watching it. I'm sure, like the build up and all of that. Like right. it's a very different situation. But again, like that's part of the thrill of like you want to believe it's real. You all of that. Like that's what makes it so good and so scary and so. I mean, it's yeah. based on a true story. Like, okay, well, what parts are real? What parts aren't? Blah blah blah. Right. blah. Like. No, I mean, obviously, it's so awful that someone lost their life. Yeah. But I also feel that that could happen with any movie, with any anything that someone could take so seriously and so take so far. Mm-hmm. Like you never know how someone's going to react to something that you say or that you do or a movie or a concept or a anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, you could say that about the Slenderman movie even now. You know what I mean? Like, it started off as these, like, YouTube videos or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. You could literally, I mean, if someone died by suicide after that, I mean. Well, they, those people, those two girls did kill their friends. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the same thing. I mean. Yeah. I hate to, I mean, but it's the same thing, you know? I mean, what do you think? I don't think they're at fault. I think it's a slippery slope just because it's so easy to put those disclaimers where you can't really read them mm-hmm. and be like, well, it was there. Yeah, that's true. And it's like, yeah, well, I would have to get my fucking Magoo glass out to find, you know, to so read true. it. So true. And so it's like, that sucks. However, I, I don't, it's such a, it's a slippery slope of, how Stephen Volt said it, you can't see everything on TV and believe it's real, you mm-hmm. know? And that was kind of what he wanted to do. Like, you can't believe everything, but also he wanted everyone to believe it. Yeah. And that was a thing. Like, it's, like you said, it's scarier when you think it's true. And again, they had, like, written by whatever. But if you think about, like, Ghost Adventures now, it can be written by Zach Bagans because they're... There is dialogue there mm-hmm. or reenactment or whatever. And so it could be written by But him. that's not live. Well, he has live stuff, though. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. You know what I mean? So True. So you don't know if... You, you know what I mean? You don't know. Well, and I think it depends on where you're watching something. Like, if you're watching something primetime, Saturday night, BBC, NBC, something like that, like... You have to kind of expect that there's going to be, like, they're not going to put something on there that's going to put them at risk of being sued. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's like, okay, they're not going to put something on there that's like this, like, real or, you know what I mean? Yeah. However, this was 1992. Right. So, but that's what I was going to say. So you also have to, so nowadays. Yeah. Where are you watching it? Now, like, I don't know if this is everywhere, but here we have those TV, like, thingies at the top. The tell, yeah, tell you, like, is it G? Is it R? Is it this? Yeah. Why is it that? You know? <laughs> Smoking. Yeah, I mean, hell. You know, <laughs> so it's like, now you kind of, we have those things in place that I, I mean, I just don't, I don't think it would happen as much now. Right. But, I mean, here's the thing. Everybody's so goddamn litigious. And so it's like, you got people have to take some fucking responsibility for their for their own shit. Yeah. I, I mean, I literally the man who shot him. Yes. Shot himself. Yes. <laughs> it's like my heart breaks for Martin and his family. I mean, it truly and, and the other boys that went through, you know, got admitted to facilities and stuff like that. I mean, truly. But as far as like all, I mean, there there has to be some level of responsibility for, let's say, those kids if they're minors watching certain things, and let's say if he did have the mental capacity of a thirteen year old, you know, if he's living at home, if he's, you know what I mean? Right. At what point do you take? You know what I mean? I just feel like there has to be at some point. 
there people have to take responsibility for their own actions and it can't be the BBC's responsibility to to hold your hand and tell you now this is a drama now that that means this is fake right now, that means okay you see how this says that he wrote this that means that it's fake it's not their responsibility yeah. you need to do your own shit yeah well and it did air at like 9:45 so that's what the BBC said too. Like, yeah. So you they did their your, due diligence. Yeah, you let your kids watch it. Yeah, they they did their due diligence. They aired it late. They said it was a drama. They said it was written by somebody. You know. But it's also like if you if you were just flipping through mm-hmm. and you came on it, you wouldn't know at the beginning that it was written by someone. And then you're like, oh, someone's calling in. Holy shit, I see something in the background. Right. You're right. Oh my gosh. You know, and so then you're not in on it if you haven't been there from the beginning. Yeah, that's true too. Well, and like again, I know this is now, but you know, TV shows here when they come back for, from commercial, they have the little thing at the top that says, This is the rating of this show, you know. Right. So if you do come in in the middle, you know. Well, and also now we have the internet. So, like, you literally could be like, is this a hoax? Yes. While you're watching it. Because other people are going to Google the same shit. And people are going to be, like, live tweeting and all the things. Yeah. But again, would 1992 carry a fallen for it? Probably. Oh, I would have been scared shitless at the beginning. The ending would have, like, I would have been like, wait, Wait, what? what? Yeah. I do think they went a little far on the storyline like, it went a little real dark, you know. Just, with the dog? Well, with the dog, with the guy being a child molester. Yeah, that's Jeff. I forgot with, about that. Then with him being possessed yeah. by oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the 19th century baby killer. With, you know, and like, then the, the it just cats went, in the face and all that. Yeah, it was, it was a real dark. It went, like, did you have to go there? You know, like, and you... This is something we wouldn't know because we're not across the pond, but Sarah Green and Craig Charles, they did stuff with kids a lot. So, like, the shows that they were on were kid-focused, so they pulled in kids Mm -hmm. for the TV show. So, it's kind of like you knew what you were doing, getting them to have kids watch it, but then it's like, it's kind of like showing them Freddy Krueger. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. preying on kids. But all in all, it's Halloween, and it seemed like it was pretty fucking epic. Right. Again, I really I don't want to sound like um, like taken away from, you know, what happened with Martin and all that. I just, I just don't think it's the BBC's fault, you know? Yeah. I mean, clearly there were other underlying things, and that was kind of just the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. And why I said it kind of tied in with yours is just because, like, you can't trust anything, like, that you see on TV. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, don't believe face value anything. Mm-hmm. Just like your security guard who's like, this is what happened, and we all know that's not what happened. That ain't what happened. The truth is always in the fine print, the palm print, the footprint, something. I mean, and just like they say at the end of every forensic files, without forensics, this case could not be solved. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't. It came back the DNA 44 right. years later. It's true. I mean, literally at the end of every episode, <laughs> what somebody says, it wasn't for forensics. This case would never have been solved. <laughs> I feel like this was like a little kind of a, like a, like a hot, but like it just pushed my button a little bit. Just because of where we are, like, politically, with just all the shit that's on social media, and everybody just gets all up in everybody's posts about everything, and somebody posts something that you don't like, and you just, people feel like they had fucking comment on it, you know? And so I think it's like, it's one of those things like, what do you mean they called because they didn't like the show? Just turn it, you know? And I feel like it's like the 1992 version of just like, scroll past the post or delete it yeah from your feed you know like yo that is an option yeah and so i don't know like i think it just was like a little 
hot button issue for me. Yeah. And so um, maybe on a um, soapbox I shouldn't be on. Maybe it's a little like, girl, cool your jets because it's not that big of a deal. But like, just <laughs> move along. Like, you don't have to get your feelings hurt just because you didn't like the fucking show. Change it. Yeah. Just because, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Y'all tell me what you think. Am I being too high maintenance? Am I being too, okay, wow. Hit a little too close to home, Carrie. You need to chill out. <laughs> I don't think so. I feel I feel a little heated. I feel a little in the undercarriage, a little burnage. Well, that's something else. <laughs> Poor choice of words. <laughs> In the in the in the bellyage, <laughs> not heartburn. <laughs> You'd have to have a heart. Damn, you're not wrong. Well, y'all tell us if I am too aggressive. This episode, <laughs> be aggressive, be be, be aggressive. aggressive. Let us know what y'all think. Thank y'all so much for listening. Don't forget to like, review, subscribe, all the shiz. Send us your stories for sinister sightings. A paranormal chicks at gmail dot com. And remember, creep it real and don't don't get scared. scared.